Happy Sunday, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today. Thrilled you're here, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching, welcome. We are so, so glad you're here. And today we're going to continue a series we've been in called Bible Stories for Grownups. We've been in this iteration of the series. We're looking at stories from the Hebrew Bible. And I want to turn today to one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible. And it's one of my favorite because I, I think the themes that it speaks about, speaks to, are sort of the overarching themes that the Bible is, is inviting us to see. And I think, I think the story of Jonah, which we're going to look at today, captures a lot of that thematically, uh, what the Bible is trying to do. Um, it, it, this is also kind of a polarizing story for people um, because it has some fan, sort of fantastical elements to it. Um, to get, spoiler alert, I don't, I don't want to ruin it ahead of time, but if you haven't heard, the story involves a, a prophet named Jonah who runs away from his call to preach to a specific group of people. He ends up being thrown overboard, and he ends up being eaten, swallowed by a great fish, uh, not a whale, but the text of a fish, and he lives in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights. That's the story of Jonah. And um, when we approach this story, for, for lots of people, that sort of, how, how do you approach it? Is it literal? Is it non-literal? What do we do with it? And, and I want to touch on a little bit of that today. Um, but I want to I get beyond that and ask what the story is trying to say. Now, now, this story brings up, every time I think about the story of Jonah, I have this memory of a few years ago that keeps popping into my head. And um, we had, at the church I pastored in Kentucky, we had a Wednesday night group that was really similar to, to our Reconstruct group where we just talked about anything and everything. And one week there was a woman who was newer in our church community and um, she had joined us and she was there on Wednesday night. And I cannot even remember why this came up. I can't remember how. It was toward the end, like we're almost done. And the book of Jonah somehow comes up and I make this throwaway, always dangerous, throwaway comment where I say something like, well, I don't take that story literally anyway. And I could just see immediately that this was not information she had heard before, as I assumed everybody in the group had, because we'd talked about it before. This was brand new information for her. And I could just see like on her face that she was immediately like troubled <laughs> to say the least. And so we ended our time together and she started to walk out and I walked her to the door and I held up my fist for a fist bump and, and said, are we good? And she fist bumped me and I can't remember if she said anything, but she walked out just kind of stunned, <laughs> stunned that the, the this story might not be literal or that I would think that. And as the door closed, I had a friend who was standing beside me and I looked at my friend and I said, we are never going to see that woman ever again. Now, the good news is I was wrong. She came back and that moment, that Wednesday night moment actually was part of what helped jumpstart her process for reimagining her faith. And uh, now when I we talk about it, when it comes up, um, uh, usually when I'm going to be talking about the story, I'll, I'll sometimes send her a message. And uh, now we can laugh about that night and celebrate it as an important part of her journey. Um, so this story is, is sentimental in a lot of ways for me. But let's take another look at it and let's, let's ask the question, what would a grown-up faith, a post-critical grown-up faith, faith that wants something that is um, satisfying to the head and to the intellect, but also that can move us at the heart level? And so let's just begin at the beginning. Jonah 1. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, the great city, 
and cry out against it for their evil has come to my attention. Go. So Jonah gets this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And, and by the way, word of the Lord here doesn't mean the Bible. It's not like there was like a, somebody pulled up with, a, with a, like a package and Jonah opens it and it's a scroll, right? This is sort of a, a, a charismatic sort of experience for Jonah. He has this, he feels like this draw, this calling, that there's a message that he's been given that he needs to share. Uh, and we're going to see what he does with that. But first, who is Jonah? Jonah is actually only attested uh, in one place outside of the book that bears his name, and that's in 2 Kings 14. It mentions that Jonah was Amittai's son, which it says at the beginning of the book of Jonah, and that he was from a place called Gath Hefer in Israel, which is in the north of Israel. It doesn't tell us anything about him besides that. It just sort of mentions him. Um, in the book of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet, but he's also sort of a nationalist prophet. There are different streams of prophets. There are prophets with a universal vision in which God brings everybody to the mountain for a feast. And then the others have an exclusivist vision where God punishes the nations and everybody suffers except for the, the folks who have been chosen. Well, one final detail before we continue. In Jonah's time, the time when this story is set, and, and I, I think I keep saying this, but there's narrative time and then there's contextual time. And Narrative time means that it's when the story is set. It's set, like with Ruth. We know with some confidence that the book of Ruth was written later after the exile, but it's set in the period of the judges. Jonah is set during the period of the Assyrian Empire um, when they were ruling the world, but we actually think it was written also after exile. So Assyria was the empire that called the shots, that was actually threatening Israel. Um, the, the capital city was Nineveh, and it's the very city, the heart of the empire is where God calls Jonah to preach. And the large, larger story that you have as a backdrop to this, that in the year 722, the Assyrians actually conquered and deported the Israelites from the northern kingdom. There were two kingdoms, northern and southern. Um, the northern kingdom uh, was composed of 10 tribes, and they had been lost to history. After Assyria conquered them, they ceased to exist as, as a people, and they were dispersed throughout their, their empire. So, I mean, realize that when Jonah is being told to go to Nineveh, he's not, it's not like he's just being told to go to, to like Knoxville or something. He's being told, go to this place that, where the, these people are your enemies and, and they are bent on your destruction. He's, and go tell them a specific message. So when this happened, it eventually happened to Judah as well when they were conquered by Babylon. Um, but, but this is the moment when Jonah is being confronted with, what do you do when you're called to go speak this word? When your enemies are in trouble, when you know that God is going to get them. And then God says, I don't I actually don't want to get them. Go tell them. Go tell them they need to change their ways. What do you do if you're Jonah? Here's what Jonah does. So Jonah got up. He receives the word of the Lord. He gets up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish, he, that's, a, that's a hard word to say. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. What does Jonah do in response to this calling to go preach, to save his enemies from destruction? Jonah bolts. And can you blame him? Who, who wouldn't? Who would actually choose to go tell the enemies, your enemies who are threatening your existence, that they need to repent or they'll be destroyed? By the way, the idea that Jonah thinks that Jonah can go away from the Lord reflects an ancient belief that the sort of deities are territorial. 
And so when you cross the boundary into another land, another place, you're, you're not, it's not just a national border. You're, you're crossing a, a, a deity border, right? And so Jonah thinks if he just goes over here, he can run away from, from the Lord. Jonah boards a boat headed for Tarshish, which is actually in the exact opposite direction. If Nineveh is here, Tarshish is that way, right? And he goes in the exact opposite direction. Unfortunately for Jonah, he doesn't outrun the Lord. Back to the story. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. The sailors were terrified and each one cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down and was in deep sleep. The ship's officers came and said to him, how can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? You ever known somebody who could like literally sleep through anything? When I was younger, I have slept through earthquake or two. I've slept through a tornado. Um, I, I used to be able to sleep that way, not so much as I've gotten older. Um, get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will give some thought to us and we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, come on, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil happening to us. This is what we do as humans, right? Something bad's happening. We want to find a source to blame. And so they cast lots, which is a way of, you know, sort of drawing straws to see whose fault it is. They cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. And if you're Jonah, what are you doing right now? You're, you're like, are you serious? I thought I was running away from this, and now I have been singled out. So they said to him, tell us, since you're the cause of this evil that's happening to us, what, what do you do and where are you from? What's your country and what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were terrified and said to him, what have you done? The men knew Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. <laughs> they said to him, what will, what will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah's response is, yep, just throw me in the ocean. Get rid of me. I'm the problem. The men rode to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord saying, please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life and don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshiped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises, which we've all been there, right? Like, just let me get out of this speeding ticket. Let me pass this test. Let this thing go well. And I promise God, right? We've all probably been there. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now this idea of God, it's a great line. The Lord provided a great fish. Um, this is the idea of God providing, the Lord providing, is actually a theme that pops up quite a bit in the book of Jonah. And it's actually supposed to, I think it's supposed to be a little comical. It's supposed to make us uh, have a little bit of, uh, of comic relief. Because here's what God provides in the book of Jonah. God provides a great fish, which swallows Jonah. God provides a shrub, which gives Jonah, at the end of the story, some shelter from the sun. But then God provides a worm, which eats the shrub. And then God provides a dry east wind, which is uh, hot and uncomfortable to, to kind of scorch the, the, the earth around Jonah. 
So there's sort of this God's providing, but God is providing all things that Jonah doesn't want and that aren't helping him uh, along in what he wants to do in the world. Now, I also say in my pre-critical naivete, I imagine Jonah in the belly of this fish. It's a great fish after all. It doesn't say whale. Whale, it says great fish. So it's a big fish. But I imagine Jonah just hanging out in the belly of the fish, right? Like maybe he, and I really imagine this, maybe he hung some pictures on the wall. Maybe he built a fire, you know, created a cozy little reading nook to spend his three days and three nights. Um, this whole fish situation has inspired a lot of creative interpretation throughout history. And this is just, let's, let's time out. And just for the Bible nerds in, in, that might be watching this. Um, so chapter two uh, is a poem, a prayer poem that Jonah speaks from inside uh, for deliverance, that Jonah speaks from inside the fish. Now, here's a fun fact about the language in chapter two. The story begins in chapter 2, 2 verse 1, by talking about the fish. Uh, in, as a, it's a masculine word, this particular word. The, this fish is a masculine fish. In verse 2, it changes the gender of the fish to female. Um, so it read like this. The Lord provided a great fish, masculine, for Jonah, and it swallowed him. And Jonah sat in the belly of the great fish, still male, masculine, for three days and nights. Then from the belly of the fish... And the language, the Hebrew switches to feminine, Jonah began to pray. And people who, who were studying this and were reading it in Hebrew were like, what's, how, how is it that in the beginning the fish is, there's a, a masculine word used for the fish, and in the end there's a feminine word. And so they began trying to come up with interpretations that took, took, it, took both of them and made it work. And, and this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Thus, he, Jonah, spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, but he would not pray. God then resolved to put him into another fish where he would be less comfortable. A female fish, quick with young, approached the male fish in which Jonah was, threatening to devour both unless Jonah were transferred to her and announcing her divine orders to the effect. Then Jonah was ejected from one fish into the overfilled belly of another, cramped for room, and otherwise made miserable. Jonah finally prayed, acknowledging the futility of his efforts to escape God. I mean, isn't that, isn't, isn't that great? Like this wrestling, I mean, my, my gut says that there's probably been a scribal error at some point when the Bible's being copied and that's the, for the shift in the, the language. Um, the, the, the things we do to try to, to make all this stuff at times that seems contradictory makes sense instead of just embracing the messiness of it and realizing that the, the Bible, uh, I think I heard Bart Ehrman say once, the Bible may be inspired, but it's got human fingerprints all over it. Um, and this is one of those situations, I think, where the human fingerprints start to, to pop up. Um, so Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he's been hanging out for three days and three nights, and he, he decides to pray. And once he prays, at the end of chapter 2, Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So he's been in the belly of a fish, maybe two, depending on how you interpret it. Um, he's vomited out onto dry land, which I'm sure was a, a lovely experience. And then Jonah decides he's going to go to Nineveh and to give a very reluctant sermon. Um, the chapter three and four is, is really, really good literature. And it's really, really interesting. And so I thought today we would do what we did a couple weeks ago. We'd have a reader's theater. We brought the whole gang back from the last reader's theater. Uh, and they're going to read Jonah chapter three and four for us. So Take a listen to Jonah chapters 3 and 4, and then we'll come back and, and dig in. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city walking one day and he cried out. 40 days, Nineveh, 40 days, and then you will be overrun. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. When word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes and sat in ashes. Then he announced, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his officials, no longer human or animal shall taste anything. No gazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals put on the same mourning clothes and let them call upon God forcefully. And let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that is under their control. He thought, who knows? God may see this and turn from his wrath, so we might not perish. God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely what I was saying when I was back in my own homeland? This is why I fled to Tarshish. I know you're merciful and compassionate, patient, kind, full of love, and willing not to destroy things. But at this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because I would be better off dead than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then. The Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about the shrub, but God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then, as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. He begged that he might die, saying, It would be better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, You pity the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Oh man, isn't that just so fun? Lauren, Mandy, Brian, and Cohen, thank you so much. That is just, you guys deserve an Oscar. Um, so we, Jonah in chapter three becomes a reluctant preacher and he goes and the people of, I mean, the message is not heartfelt. It's like 40 more days and then we'll be, right. And he, he doesn't put the, he, it's, there, there's no emphasis. There's no enthusiasm. He's just sort of trying, he's trying to find the bar so he can just slide underneath it. Right. That's what he's doing. And unfortunately, fortunately, but unfortunately for Jonah, 
the people of Nineveh repent. And not only do the people repent, but the animals also participate in repentance. And when they do, God relents on the plan to destroy Nineveh, which makes Jonah furious with God. And this story ends much like the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. This story ends with an open-endedness, with Jonah asking God, can't I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left? And so many animals, end of story. We don't know what Jonah says back. Does Jonah come around? Does he ever get it? Does Jonah eventually say, gosh, you're right. I, I totally haven't been seeing this the right way. We don't know what Jonah does because we get to decide. Because the question at the end of this book isn't ultimately a question for Jonah. I, I think Jonah in this story is a literary character that was taken from uh, Israel's past and placed into this context for a very, very parabolic and powerful reason. The question is, what do we do? I think this is the, the question of the book. What do we do with a God who's far more compassionate and generous than we are comfortable with at times? What do we do with that God? The God who not only loves us, but loves our enemies. The God who makes the sun rise and the rain fall so our crops can grow. And the God who does that also for our enemies. The God who longs to embrace us and the God who longs to embrace those that we would exclude. So a few takeaways from this story. At first, I think we just need to say this again and again. This story isn't about a fish. Right? The fish is a symbol, but it's not the point of the story. Scott McKnight in his book, The Blue Parakeet, says this, Missing the difference between God and the Bible is a bit like the person who reads Jonah and spends hours and hours figuring out if a human can live inside a whale and what kind of whale it was, wasn't a whale, but never encounters God. The book is about Jonah's God, not Jonah's whale, fish. All right, so, so first of all, it's not about the fish. It's about something else. It's about this God and this prophet and sort of this tug of war inside of Jonah being drawn to give a sermon that he doesn't want to give because he's afraid of the outcome. Um, Jonah is also a story of reversals. What we expect to happen doesn't. Uh, there are surprises that would have been quite shocking to the original audience of this story. All right, it's not Jonah on the boat who cries out to God, and it's this Gentile sailors, not Jonah. These Gentiles who even have to ask Jonah what the name of his God is start crying out to Jonah's God for help. It's the king and the people of Nineveh and the animals of Nineveh who respond to God in obedience. And it's Jonah, the prophet, who disobeys God's call to go to Nineveh and preach. We expect Jonah to have a change of heart after the whole big fish throwing him up on the beach situation. Like that maybe he had changed his mind about his calling to preach and he was going to go do it and give it his all. And he doesn't. He gives a sermon, but it's very, very it lacks enthusiasm. It's one of the most half-hearted sermons in history. And then he gets angrier at God when the people respond by repenting. Like, like they, they, they respond to his sermon by doing what he says that they should do, and he's furious about it. I, I think the Jonah story is here to remind us that our boundaries for who's in and who's out are just that. They're our boundaries. God isn't bound by them. God's love isn't bound by the people we would exclude. I think it was Anne Lamott says, or was it Anne Lamott? Um, you, you can tell you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. All right, that tends to be how religious 
groups function, right? We decide who's in, who's out, and we use God to sort of reinforce that and reinforce um, those boundaries of in and out, of included and excluded, of pure and impure, of saved and unsaved, right? Like we, we've done that for years and years since humans have humaned, we've been doing this. As the late Rachel Hold Evans said so powerfully, what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Perhaps the question for us, even those of us who consider ourselves progressive Christians who want to be as in loving and compassionate, inclusive and generous as possible, maybe the question becomes, who do I want to exclude Maybe we also ask the question, what is being asked of me that makes me want to run in the opposite direction? Like, what is it? What is the, if I had the sense that my work in the world was to do this, whatever that is, it would make me want to go board a boat and get as far away from that work as possible. Who is it that, if, if truth be told, deep down, I would never want to admit it, but I, I would like to exclude them because of this. Right? I think that's the those are the questions the story of Jonah is, is pushing us into. What are we going to do with our enemies? Right? Because if we, I think one of the central messages of the Bible is if we don't learn to love our enemies, we're in big, big, big trouble. And if Jonah doesn't learn to love his enemies, he's going to get swallowed up again. So, so based on the kind of Hebrew used in the book of Jonah, scholars date it to the after the return from exile. So exile was what happened when the Babylonians defeated and deported the people of Judah. Um, and, and this would have happened way after the time of this Jonah story. But, but maybe the story is, is a way of the author saying, when we failed to act in ways that were just, generous, and compassionate, we were swallowed up in exile. And if we don't learn to act in ways that are just, generous, and compassionate, Maybe this story is giving us a warning that if we continue to engage with our enemies in hostility and vengeance, we are in really big trouble. If all we can ever do is draw our lines in the sand and stand against, you know, in, in partisanship, if all we can do is launch arguments at one another, if we can't find a way to work together to create a better world, a world that is in, inclusive and works for everybody and is uh, it, is transformative and everybody has that. Like, if we don't figure out how to do this, if we keep building bigger bombs, if we keep buying more bullets, we are in big, big, big trouble. What are we gonna do with our enemies? What are we gonna do when we have that sense that we're being invited to a work, to engage in something, to partner in something that challenges our biases and challenges our preconceived notions and challenges just our own willingness to engage in that work. In a sense, that's the, that's the warning of the Jonah story. If we continue to be engaged in hostility, if we continue to pursue revenge, we're in really big trouble. May we learn that lesson. May we, may we learn it in such a way that we embody it, that we internalize it, and then we actually begin to live that way in the world. May we not run from our call to love our enemies, even our enemies. And may we embrace a vision of God that is so expansive and so universal that there are moments when it actually makes us a bit uncomfortable because God's love is expanding and it expands to those who I 